if you can help with raising awareness about blood pressure, that'd be fantastic as part of what you're doing because blood pressure drives heart attack. It drives stroke. It drives atrial fibrillation. It drives cardiac failure. It drives renal failure and it drives dementia. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by AIF's network. With an unrivaled variety of continuing education courses for fitness professionals, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, Network can help you stay at the forefront of our constantly evolving industry. An elite subscription to Network provides unlimited access to more than 40 courses across areas from functional training and strength and conditioning to nutrition and women's health. And there's even a free subscription option too. Find out more at network.fitness.edu.au. Dr. Warwick Bishop is a renowned practicing cardiologist, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and creator of the Healthy Heart Network. Here, he chats with the fitness industry podcast, Oliver Kitchingman, about why early risk detection is critical in prevention of heart attack and how fitness professionals can help clients identify and manage their risk in order to live as well as possible for as long as possible. Warwick, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Ollie, thanks for the opportunity to share. Warwick, after the very sad sudden passing of two of our greatest cricket legends, Rod Marsh and Shane Warne recently, the spotlight has been shone onto the issue of heart attacks and heart health. So what are the figures looking like on cardiac arrest in Australia these days? Look, the figures are staggering. And as you're probably aware, and in fact, because you've got an educated listening audience in the physical training and health industry, you would be completely aware that coronary disease is the single biggest killer combined in Australia. It kills more than any single other disease. And we seem to pay lip service to it. The events of this week show us that we're not good at being proactive. And this is one of the things that frustrates me, particularly when it's a condition that if we know who's truly at high risk, we can make real differences a good number of people will die from coronary artery disease or its consequences. Coronary disease has killed more people than COVID in the last two years. Globally, the single biggest statistic, Ollie, that I think absolutely raises the hair on the back of my neck is that 25% of all heart attacks occur in individuals who are 65 years of age or less. That is just wasted life. That is a huge number of people that we would probably, I mean, many of us might think that that's not a high risk market, the under 65s. And if you've got 25% of people having heart attacks in this age group, are they necessarily the people that we would think of as being maybe overweight or obese or having other lifestyle factors? So look, I think this is a really important question and it's one that we haven't really started to understand. And honestly, The people listening to this, the people in the fitness industry will have a handle on this because I know London to a brick, there will be people listening to this who have had people who are essentially fit and well within their training programs who have dropped dead from a heart attack. Well, why does that happen? The reason, Ollie, is that we have become too attached to thinking associations for heart attack are causative of heart attack. And if I can indulge in a minute just to explain what I mean by that. Please do. 
if we think of a different environment altogether, a different scenario altogether, let's think of car accidents. You and I would agree that speeding and alcohol are completely linked to car accidents. But I'm going to tell you that they're only associations. And the reason is, if they were causative, then every time someone sped or every time someone consumed alcohol, they'd have a car accident. And that's not the case. And of course, people cannot drink and not speed, be driving safely in a well-maintained car in good weather and still have a car crash. And so what we forget is that the associations are important. No question. If you're driving way over the speed limit, you're at much greater risk of having a car accident. If you're driving under the influence of alcohol, you're at much greater risk. So we do have to stamp that out. But they're only associative. And there can be many, many people who don't have those associations but still end up having an accident because of the complexity of what goes on at the time of a car accident. Similarly, the complexity of what goes on in coronary arteries. So age, sex, cholesterol, blood pressure, these are all really important on a population basis, but they don't help us predict in the individual. Just like slowing people down and reducing alcohol on a population basis reduces car accidents, it doesn't stop them. I guess the focus is on those factors because there's an element of control in you can stop yourself from speeding, ideally. You can stop yourself from drinking and driving. So how does that apply in terms of controlling elements that can increase our risk for heart attack? So let me come back to the cardiac example. If an average 50-year-old male, say 50 to 55-year-old male, went along to his general practitioner his local doctor and said, look, what's my risk of heart attack? Then the doctor would put in into a risk calculator a number of different characteristics like age, male, sex, we've just said, the blood pressure, the cholesterol levels, smoking history, diabetic history, all the things that we know as standard associations or risk factors for heart disease. And now I can tell you for the average bloke at about 55 years of age, when we put that information into a risk calculator, it says your risk of heart attack is about 10% in the next 10 years. Just look after yourself and we'll check you again in a year or two. But if I can get you to think about those numbers slightly differently, imagine you were that 55-year-old man and you came in to see me, I'd say, look, Ollie, based on those characteristics you've just given me, what this calculator tells me is if I took 100 men just like you, and followed those 100 men for 10 years, 10 of you would have a heart attack. We just don't know if you're one of the 10. Because in actual fact, your event rate over the next 10 years will either be 0% or 100%. Now, the more risk factors you have, the greater the event rate within the population. The less risk factors you have, the lower the event rate within the population. But it's uncommon for it to be a zero risk altogether. And it's a matter of identifying who is that individual who might be at risk. So you're saying that some of these statistics could give us a false sense of security. We could say, look, I've got a 90% chance I'm going to be fine. That's exactly right. So when a patient, again, let's imagine you're that 55-year-old male, you walk in, 
In fact, you're saying what you want from me is what's my risk of heart attack? And what I've given you is the rate of event within the population which in you sit. So a little bit like driving, back to the car analogy, if you speed and drink alcohol, your risk of a car accident is markedly increased. Doesn't mean you'll have one. If you don't speed, don't have alcohol on board, you still have a risk of a crash. Your risk is lower, but it's not zero. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it sounds very much then as though you're suggesting we need to be knuckling down on individual risk factor rather than looking at general populations. So we do need to, uh, well, what do we need to do? Well, look, I think if we understand those risk calculators and work from those because they're the basis of what we've used for years, if you've got enough strikes against you, age and blood pressure and diabetic status, and you truly are at high risk, it's a bit of a no-brainer, Ollie. We treat those people. We just put them on therapy as appropriate. That's pretty simple, pretty common sense. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got people who are truly low risk. Think, you know, a 45-year-old woman who's fitting well with normal cholesterol. These are very low risk features. And these people really probably don't need much done at all. Those men at about 50 to 55 and women at about 60 to 65 really represent that shades of grey or intermediate risk where bringing precision around choice of therapy into the future makes the most sense because some of those people will have an event, some of them won't, and imagine we could grab them, scan their heart arteries and say to them, look, you're fine, we'll see you again in five years, keep doing what you're doing, or, Ollie, you've really got some build-up of plaque there, we think over the next five to 10 years, that may well carry unacceptable risk. We're going to modify that risk with these therapies and that therapy and this surveillance or whatever else it might be. It allows us to go from a population-based rate of event or assessment to an individualized assessment. So I'm an advocate for looking at that intermediate patient group and having a conversation about imaging the heart, a 3D image of the heart that allows us to literally see who's at risk and who isn't. Well, I hope that's the only time I hear a doctor say those exact words to me that you just, <laughs> that you just said. But, you know, as you, we point out here, look, it can happen to anybody. So, yes, you are a preventative cardiologist and as such, you know, an advocate for routine testing, as you just discussed there. So why don't we test for heart attack risk in the same way that we do for other diseases? So, I mean, for example, breast cancer, you have routine mammograms in women after a certain age. I know with I think, bowel cancer, there's a test that is often is actually mailed out. I think it's an at-home test that is mailed out to, I think, is it only the male population of a certain age? If heart, heart disease and a heart attack is a greater killer, why is it not treated in the same way? Look, that's a really interesting question and one that I've been butting my head against the wall about for probably the last decade. As we talked about off air, I've actually written a book on this explaining why those barriers are there. And in fact, I even did a TEDx talk, which some people might find interesting. But the long and the short of it is it's a complexity of interplay between where's the money and where's the evidence. Now, everything in medicine these days for it to become a guideline recommendation. So this is when the major organisations within any medical arena 
when they come out with a dictum, everyone should check this. For example, when people turn 50 years of age, we should give them a bowel cancer screening kit. That has to come about because there's been clear evidence in a double-blind randomised controlled trial, which is the highest level of scientific evidence demonstrating a benefit. Now, you'd say, well, surely this sort of technology could allow that information. Well, unfortunately, what's happened is that the question has been asked, does scanning alter outcome? And so the way to test that is to scan a bunch of people see what their scan results are, literally, and then randomise them to treatment or not treatment to demonstrate that the treatment arm benefits over the non-treatment arm. Now, if you think about that momentarily, what we would be doing by finding those subjects is identifying people who may have built up a plaque in their arteries who we randomise to no therapy. So there is an ethical issue with it. And in fact, someone tried to run a trial like that about 20 years ago in America. It was called the St. Francis Heart Study. And the ethics committee said, no, you can't randomise these people without any therapy. You've got to give them a bit of aspirin. It turned out that some of the other constructs of the trial were poorly thought through. And it turned out that this trial was null and void because they didn't use enough statin, they didn't use enough high-risk people, and the non-treatment group got aspirin. So we're confounded with only observational data. Now, there is an irony with that because the risk calculator that I was just telling you about that told us that you're at intermediate risk, there's never been a randomised controlled trial to demonstrate that they actually are beneficial anyway. They only show us a rate of event. They've never been trialled against placebo. And so really cut CT should be, at least in my opinion, being considered as an adjunct to that as an observational tool that allows us to choose a you know, risk of therapy and someone's risk that we're looking to mitigate. Okay, Warwick. So you've alluded to the routine testing and I've you mentioned the time period of around five years being routine, you know, if all being well, you come back in five years, or is there a spectrum there as well within, depending on the level of risk? So we do have a couple of position papers in Australia that support the use of calcium scoring. So I'm not a left field nut. I can absolutely assure you of that. And I can also let you know that I was privileged enough to be one of the Heart Foundation of Australia's expert writing group for the Heart Foundation's position paper for Australia in this particular arena. And the international literature and our own feeling supports the premise that if you've got a zero score, no calcium or evidence of plaque in your arteries, then repeating that at about five years is reasonable. And then it's really intervention is graduated based on whatever we see in the arteries from there. Okay, so when it comes to the testing, I know before we get to the 3D scanning that you spoke about earlier. There's a virtual heart scan. Is that correct? Look, Ollie, what we put together on my website at virtualheartscan.com is the opportunity for patients to really seek out whether they're in the right space for considering a cardiac CT scan. So I've got a risk calculator on the page. And so people can put in their own, fill in their own survey, basically, see if they're appropriate or not for considering a scan. They can then take that to their GP if they wish. 
but we can also provide the opportunity for that person to roll straight on and obtain a referral to get that scan done in any major city in Australia for $300 all up, which the reason we created it is we realised that a lot of GPs are not necessarily familiar with that technology, but many patients know of it, want a bit more information, ask their GPs, and then at times they're told, oh, no, you're fine, your risks aren't that bad, you don't need it, and so the testing's not being done. So we've put that up there, a risk calculator, and if appropriate, the opportunity to purchase a scan in your local area. That's just on that virtualheartscan.com website, actually. Okay, Warwick, a lot of our listeners will be in a position where they can influence the lifestyle behaviours of this exact cohort, the high-risk cohort of 50-plus individuals, as they will be training them, their personal training clients. What other behaviours, other than the exercise that they're obviously involved in, what other behaviours can reduce risk of heart attack? So, look, I think this is really important, Ollie. It's absolutely fundamental to not lose sight of the risk factors. Speeding and alcohol for car crashes remains important. And so we need to focus on the risk factors for heart disease. So the people listening to this, there's no question you guys are helping out. Exercise just by itself is fantastic for reducing heart attack. And we know that probably because it drives reduced insulin levels, better insulin responsiveness, better lipid profiles with raised HDL cholesterol, lower triglyceride. You guys, I'm sure, listening to this know all about it. So exercise, fantastic. You guys would also be driving weight loss. And I so encourage my patients who are carrying too much weight to drop the weight. Why? Because it drives insulin resistance. Why? Because it reduces quality of life. Why? It reduces exercise capacity. It also drives hypertension. And hypertension is just such a powerful risk factor that we can truly make a big difference for. And I talk to my patients, I get very OCD about hypertension. And if you, the guys listening to this, guys and gals, that's a guy, general <laughs> broad term, the people listening to this, if you can help with raising awareness about blood pressure, that'd be fantastic as part of what you're doing because blood pressure drives heart attack. It drives stroke. It drives atrial fibrillation. It drives cardiac failure. It drives renal failure and it drives dementia. So this is really important as well. Once you've done all those things, I think it's really important for the individuals, males 50-something, women 60-something, to really be thinking about what else can we check? Can we look under the bonnet? Can we scan our heart with a bit more detail and see if, in spite of what we're doing, could we still be at extremely high risk or intermediate risk or are you know, is there a little plaque in our arteries? So I think the answer to your question there, Ollie, is we continue to focus on those traditional risk factors. But I think we should be asking that question more. Could there be something lurking there that we just haven't been able to identify? Should we be having a scan and checking that? And in my ideal world, men at about 50 years of age would receive their bowel cancer test kit at 50, and they'd receive a voucher to go and get a scan on their heart and women would be getting their fifth bowel cancer test kit at 60 years of age and they receive a coupon to go and get a, a 3D scan of their heart. And I think that would would make such a big difference in 
in the mortality and the morbidity we see from this condition. And I really want to underline that if we know who's got a problem, we can make a difference. This is not like testing for something we can't fix. This is testing for something that we can truly save people's lives. And, and look, I'm so excited to speak to a group of people who are in physical training because I know you guys are doing this to help people. My why is to help people live as well as possible for as long as possible. And I know you guys listening to this are in the same, have the same T-shirt, you know, it's what we do. So while personal trainers might not be in a position to be giving their clients these vouchers to go and get the free testing, they are in a position to be reminding them of it regularly, right? And perhaps even building it into their goals, you know, making it an annual thing to remind them to maybe jump onto the heart health test, healthyheartnetwork.com. And I guess there is a range of other things they can be doing. They could be having, you know, gyms and clubs could be hosting talks or having promotions or campaigns to, to, to raise awareness about and have a clear instructions as well about where to go to, to test for heart health. Look, exactly, Ollie. I think, look, there are two points in there that, I'll, <laughs> that I'd really love to touch on. One is as a personal trainer and like 50-something years of age came along, I would absolutely love the knowledge of his heart health before I start exercising him. How bad would it be if in the midst of your training program with this person, they had a heart attack? I mean, in my own practice as a cardiologist, I make sure I image people's arteries so I know exactly what I'm dealing with. But I can't help but think the people at the coalface of physical training and gyms really want to know what's going on as well. And so it might be a conversation that you have really so that you know what's going on with your client. So really important, I think, and, and a great bit of information to know if there is a problem there, it's being managed appropriately and you don't stumble into a bear trap accidentally. Look, the other thing you touched on is clubs. We've recognised that sometimes it takes a community to move these messages and we've actually put together on our virtualheartscan.com page the opportunity for individuals to engage in the scan as you know they wish, but we've also put their corporate and club opportunities so that businesses who may want to look after their employees or clubs who want to look at dealing with a good number of people, we can address that for them. And look, if you do have people who are interested, I'd love them to reach out to our website. We've got help buttons and all sorts of easy ways to contact us on the site if need be. Great stuff. I mean, I think clubs are always looking for programs and resources to help the community and something like this that does affect so much of their community. And that is obviously, sadly, really so high profile at the moment. It's a great opportunity for clubs to get on board. I agree. Of course, after cardiac arrest, when prevention hasn't been possible and it does occur, there is obviously a lot of clubs do have the AEDs, the automated defibrillators in them these days, although not all. It's definitely something that clubs should be having. I, I would imagine that there may be, we've talked about educating people about the risks of heart attack. Is there also hesitancy about knowing what to do if somebody has suffered a suspected heart attack and maybe some reluctance to use these defibrillators if you haven't been trained in them or concerned that you might be doing more harm than good? So I think this is a really good question. I think it's incredibly valuable to realise that there have been good conversations around CPR and AEDs over the last decade. 
if we were talking about this 10 years ago, Ollie, AEDs in clubs would have been pretty well unheard of. But, you know, the likes of Guy Leach driving Hart 180 and Greg Page, who is the original Yellow Wiggle, who also is driving Heart of the Nation, who survived because of a defib. These guys who I know well have really raised the profile of these defibrillators. And honestly, they should be everywhere if at all possible. And people should be prepared to use them. You just whack them on and they do everything. You don't have to know anything. If the person doesn't need a shock, it won't deliver a shock. If the person does need a shock, it will. And if you can get them in the first three minutes, you've got a very, very good chance of getting that heart back into normal rhythm. So it's an absolute no-brainer. Having said all that, it really is all about being a parachute when what I'm talking about is making sure you just service the plane regularly. (laughs) Nobody wants to jump out of a plane and nobody wants to go through a cardiac arrest and be saved, you know. You want to make sure it doesn't happen in the first place. And one of the things that I've seen as someone standing on the sideline is that people go, oh, yeah, 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 we'll get a defib and that'll save lives, which is great, don't get me wrong. But it's an easy fix. You can grab a device, put it on the wall, and it sort of ticks a box, and everyone feels comfortable about that. But I really, for those who are listening, I really want to underline that is way too late in the process. You do not want to use your parachute. You need it. I have no issue with them being available. I think it is fantastic. I'm 110% support. In my opinion, we really need to be five years ahead of ever needing these devices and really preventing their need, but having them there as an absolute just-in-case. Wise words, huh? Prevention is always better than cure. Warwick, do you have any final words of advice to fitness professionals about how they might help their clients? Look, it's been a pleasure talking. What I really have hoped to get across is that there's a big difference between rate of event within a population. So the number of cars that will crash if someone's speeding or taking alcohol versus what happens to an individual. And the only way we can bridge that gap is by literally looking at the individual. I hope I've covered the people at what we would consider in medical jargon intermediate risk, but Imaging the arteries using that 3D scanner, that virtual heartscan.com website goes through all this is not an unreasonable question whatsoever and allows us to be proactive and precise about what we do for an individual. Look, I'm all about trying to help people get the best solution for their healthcare into the future and education. And it's been a pleasure to share. I certainly hope some of the people listening perhaps check out my podcasts and information as well. And if you're interested, those TEDx talks, I think are really quite informative. So look, pleasure sharing. And if anyone does want to reach out, please do feel free to. Thank you so much, Warwick. And I'm sure links to your podcast, to your TEDx talk, and all of the other information can all be found at drwarwickbishop.com. Yep, drwarwickbishop.com gives you all the educational material and virtualheartscan.com will take you through the heart scan process. So we've got two separate interfaces there thanks very much work it's a very topical discussion and i think this will be really useful information and 
PTs and other fitness professionals that are in a position to make a difference to their clients' lives hopefully can take something very useful and practical from this. I hope so too, Ollie. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking with the Fitness Industry Podcast. For a huge range of online courses for fitness professionals, many of them fully accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, head to the network site. An elite subscription to network provides unlimited access to more than 40 courses, plus big discounts on licensed courses from our partners. Go to network.fitness.edu.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career.